Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, joined today by Senior Business Reporter Rachel Sapin and Executive Editor John Fiorillo. Let's dive right into it. Uh, this week was marked by a uh, an interesting documentary that was released on Netflix. This was uh, announced a few weeks a few weeks back, and I have to say that John Fiorillo was uh, cautioning or flagging up that this could be a big deal. It could raise quite a uh, a hubbub. And I dismissed him at the time and said, no, this will, this isn't going to be a big deal. And he was right. And I have to admit that. And I said I would. And so I admit it, John. And John happens to be the only one on our team besides Anders Faruset in Norway that has seen Seaspiracy, as a document uh, documentary is called. Um a lot of stuff was said and was tried to be crammed into one uh, one uh, film here, John. So why don't you tell us a bit about uh, what exactly Seaspiracy is trying to tell us? Well, um, in a nutshell, they were. It was largely a film, a quote unquote, documentary designed to dissuade people from eating seafood um, and drive them more to a vegan slash plant-based diet. So um, very similar to the one uh, they did called Cowspiracy um, a few years ago or whenever it was, I don't recall. But yeah, I, I described it in uh, as a mishmash of old, oversimplified, and in many cases debunked environmental half-truths all funneling to the overall message, don't eat fish, go vegan. And that's what it was. It reminded me, <laughs> watching it, it reminded me like on uh, on Halloween when you go to one of those haunted houses, it's one scary thing after another. You know, first it's Frankenstein pops out, and then it's whatever, Dracula or whatever. And that's just the way it was there. First it was, you know, we're killing dolphins, and then we're killing the whales, and then we're polluting the ocean with plastics from fishing nets, and... Well, on and on and on and on and on. So, yeah, I wasn't impressed. Well, I will say those are all legitimate concerns, absolutely. But what I, from what you had told me and what I've read about the reviews, um, you know, the New York Times really blasted it, which kind of says something because um, it's widely considered a more left-leaning publication um, and more open to these uh, of types of documentaries, one would think. But it was it was brutal um, in in the way that described it and described the techniques. And um, I I don't know if if you got this impression, John, but what the New York Times was saying was that it was it seemed. Uh, not that the issues were necessarily uh, fabricated, because I do think the issues they hit on, or several of them at least that were discussed, are very legitimate issues. What they said was that the way they went about kind of cloak and dagger, sort of pretend uh, investigative journalism um, was was what really kind of undercut the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, it had a almost comical flair to it you know i guess and yes they did you know hit on i would say the greatest hits right they hit on all the greatest hits of environmental concern about um about 
uh, seafood harvesting and, and uh, aquaculture to a, to a much more minor degree. But for example, and NFI had a pretty good takedown of, of it on their uh, website. Um, but, you know, they pulled out the, the debunked uh, no fish in the sea by 2048 study, quote unquote, that was out a few years ago and completely debunked by everybody who's in the scientific community who matters. So, you know, it, it, it was, it was the greatest hits, so to speak. And, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I didn't find it very, um, convincing in any way. I mean, what's unfortunate, you know, is that, um, plastics, um, dolphins and, and whales and, uh, climate change, these are all legitimate issues that, good journalism can really shed light on. Um, and there has been some amazing pieces that have been written about these issues. Um, Ian Urbina, who uh, writes for the New York Times and recently did a piece for uh, the New Yorker or the Atlantic, I'm not sure. But um, but he's done some really good uh, reporting. Some of it is disputable, I think, for those of us that are kind of really deep in the industry. But in general... Um, He's done some incredible reporting. The reason I bring him up is that um, getting financing for his reporting is really difficult. And he basically sends out kind of GoFundMe emails to 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 get money to, to fund this kind of in-depth investigative journalism that, that needs to, to happen. And so, you know, it's um, I think with a documentary like this, you know, it it there can be so much excitement and so much funding that goes into it because people know it will get this platform and this exposure. But on the other hand, you know, I, I don't think if the, if the ultimate mission of the documentary was to drive people to be vegans, um, I guess if you're not a very critical thinker, this maybe could have pushed you over the edge on that. If you are a critical thinker, there's plenty of resources and plenty of great reporting out there that maybe could make you feel like you should eat vegan or eat plant-based. Um, but I don't know. It, it's kind of unfortunate, I think, that so much attention was put on what seems to me, and I should reserve um, maybe full judgment until I've seen it myself, but um, at least from what was raised and the sources that they used, the people they put on camera and the studies they cited, um, like you said, John, those are primarily debunked or, um, v you know, a lot of questions have been brought up about the, the funding or the methodology, etc. You can't sit here and say there aren't problems with commercials fishing, commercial fishing's interaction with the oceans. And, and, and that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say, you know, there was, no, you know, it was all lies and no good and, you know, whatever. But, yeah, it, it just... Um, it it just it was a mishmash is is the best way to describe it. I I don't I know what he was trying to do, but um, it, it was, I thought he you know was pretty weak overall. So, well let's let's talk about the the um, maybe more salient point that came out of it. It was one that that you uh, just tackled in a column, and it wasn't necessarily what was accused or alleged, but rather what was not said to defend the accusation. Now, this is that the MSC is essentially uh, pay-for-play, essentially greenwashing. Um, and that's an allegation that 
the that they've faced for years from Greenpeace and several other uh, NGOs that sort of die down as they put in more robust sort of third party um, systems, you know, to to um, to really make that standard um, kind of the gold standard for the industry or widely viewed in, in that way. Um, but what you took issue with was that they did not actually do anything to kind of refute the allegations, didn't go on camera, didn't, uh, as far as I can tell, didn't, didn't comment at all. Is that the case? No, they didn't. And, you know, the, the film shows him reaching out uh, through email at first or uh, on his computer trying to line up an interview and I, I'm unclear how many times but it looked like at least a couple times he tried that and then he went to their uh, headquarters and you know just appeared and had the cameras rolling and you know it, it was they wouldn't talk to him you know so it it looked really bad the optics were not good at all so I, I and I found that you know I don't know I the MSC free <laughs> You know, for years, the MSC and the industry kind of, you know, butted heads. But the MSC uh, exists because there's a commercial fishing industry. And there's, you know, no two ways around that. <clears throat> Excuse me. But yet, um, they weren't prepared enough to, to say anything. And their communications director and I engaged a little on my LinkedIn um post on it and um you know she was defending them just staying away from such a kind of you know i don't want to say lowbrow but but unsophisticated documentary and that was you know that, that was kind of the reason why they they uh dodged and uh hid uh from it so to speak but but that doesn't hold water with me i mean um you know, for all the industry has done, you know, in coordination with the MSC to not only get the MSC legitimate in many ways, but, you know, to help the industry as well with um, its sustainable its sustainability. I, I guess I kind of would have liked to see the MSC, you know, step in, step into the void and, and uh, give some robust argument. Now, they can't control how this guy will edit it and, you know, probably he'll edit it out. But, you know, I, I got to think there's, there's some countermeasures they could have taken. Um, I mean, they could even film the interview themselves and had you no know, full documentation of what actually was said. But anyways, they didn't, they didn't do anything. And I, I think that was a missed opportunity because they did the the documentary didn't have any what I would call real seafood people, uh, industry people uh, in it. They didn't talk to scientists. They didn't talk to Ray Hilborn or any of the, you know, the noted scientists in the world on <laughs> sustainability. So, you know, the, the MSC kind of had to be the bodyguard there, and they they ran down the hall. So the other thing, Drew, is that the label just got smeared. I mean, they showed the labels, you know, for several shots and he called it. Uh, I, I, I don't know if this is a direct quote. I don't recall, but basically a paper uh, play uh, scheme to, you know, get the seafood industry off the hook. Well, 
okay, so if you and I hear that, you know, we know better. We've been around for a little while. But if I'm just a viewer on Netflix, one of their 190 million or however many it is, um, I don't know this. I And let's just say I believed it. My takeaway would have been, well, that label is bunk, you know? And they've spent 25 years building integrity into that label. So, um, yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was weird. Hmm. Rachel, what do you think, uh, the kind of ultimate result will be? Do you think these types of things actually move people to change behavior or is it kind of, you know, you sort of move on to the next thing on Netflix and forget about it? I don't know. I mean, it's kind of scary, you know, any information that gets out there and is very made very public. You don't know where it goes. I mean, we know that from, I hate to bring it up, but like, you know, QAnon and, and how much misinformation is in that whole uh, thing. And, you know, we're still working now on kind of informing people about what is actually going on in the world. So yeah, it, it all adds up. And, you know, as much as, uh, a New York Times story is going to help uh, people who read that uh, kind of figure out that, yeah, this is a pretty sensational documentary. I don't know about the general public that just kind of watches Netflix. It's it's definitely a concerning type of um, reporting and uh, uh, news making that I don't know. I, I It always kind of worries me to see these kind of documentaries. Well, and I think it's, yeah, you bring up a good, there, there's so many... Um... There, there's so many different distribution methods now, whether it's social media or Netflix or all the other streaming channels. The barrier to entry is very low to get eyeballs on your work. Um, and there is such a desperate need for content by these groups. There, there's uh, so many people actually need um need to have uh, movie ideas and film ideas. So, you know, you go onto Netflix and you think, Oh my God, there are so many, uh, so many shows to choose from here. Um, and probably see Spiracy will just sort of fade away within the next week because there'll be something else that is going to come along and take its place. But that's what I find fascinating is that like you point out, Rachel, it's so easy for things to get, out there and as journalists uh, you mentioned it earlier john i mean we're all pro investigation we're all pro uh finding um finding fair reporting on on issues that need attention and and the overarching general issues here do need attention but um but i think that um yeah it certainly doesn't help when you have sort of um you know, um, I don't want to say propaganda. That might be too giving too much credence to the the film. But you know, when you have this kind of um, documentary that comes out, gets a lot of attention, um, and doesn't get sort of um, you know refuted by anybody beyond industry, it it can be it can be damaging. I I, I mean, it's not the end of the world by any means. Obviously, you know, but. It, you know, it shows, again, our, our communication problem as an industry to some degree, right? I mean, because 
they were the MSC in this case. They were really the only legitimate seafood uh, industry representative given an opportunity to combat some of the information, and and they punted. You know, they kicked it down the field, and I don't know. I mean, that can't that you know that can't always be the solution. You know, it's it's not a great solution, uh, especially as Rachel said. You know, we're living in a time where truth is dead, you know, nobody, everybody has their own truth. And, uh, you know, the real truth is you can't find it anymore. It's, it's, it seems to be gone. So I don't know. I, I mean, I don't want to overreact to it in any way. People probably think I already did, but I, I just, I, I was just kind of surprised that, you know, uh, the MSC didn't take an opportunity to stick up for the, industry on which it survives well let's see because uh i i think there will be some uh some dust settling over the coming uh week or or so uh i question whether or not it has much staying power i think if you're already on your way to being vegan or already on your way to being a plant-based eater you're gonna get more information than just this one documentary um so mm, I don't know. Uh, you were absolutely right that it was going to get more attention than I thought it would. But uh, long term, uh, let's see. Let's see. Um, okay. So, Rachel, um, you have been um, taking on a big task this week, and that is tracking um, the legal uh, developments in British Columbia regarding the Discovery Islands closure. Um, and that is a important region in British Columbia, um, where salmon are farmed by, by Movie, Grig, and Cermak, primarily Movie. Um, and tell us sort of where the saga stands. So the Canadian Prime Minister, or I'm sorry, the Canadian Ministry of Fisheries, Bernadette Jordan, um, met with First Nations groups last year, and then in December determined that those sites should be moved. Um, and then now we're into, um, sort of a legal phase of trying to figure out exactly the right way to extricate, uh, those companies from the region. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's a pretty, uh, pretty big legal case going on in, um, it's actually happening at the federal court level in Canada. So it's, it's in Ottawa that these proceedings are happening, but because there's a pandemic, I can listen via and watch um, the proceedings via Zoom as a uh, just a viewer, which has been fascinating. Um, so really, yeah, it has been movie uh, versus the uh, uh, Canada's fisheries minister. <laughs> and I've gotten to hear their lawyers kind of go back and forth with some very interesting legal arguments. Um, and it was a two-day hearing that happened this past week where a movie basically said, okay, we are trying to get all of our operations out of Discovery Islands. Um, the company has about 30% of its operations in Discovery Islands, so quite a bit. Uh, they have to get it out by June 30th of next year. But um, what the fisheries minister is not allowing is for a movie to have transfer licenses to transfer fish between the Discovery Island sites. And movies saying, you know, we are just kind of culling fish um we are laying people off that work for us who are also indigenous workers 
Um, we are not able to move forward with a, an agreement we have with the First Nations in this area um, because of the minister. And the minister has basically, well, a, a lawyer acting on behalf of her in these hearings has basically said the minister has heard from the majority of First Nations in the Discovery Islands. They don't want fish transfers to happen and they want you to figure it out. And, you know, we're wondering why you haven't figured out something else to do yet. <laughs> so it's very um, contentious, uh, kind of what's going on between the two parties. Okay, so you also mentioned in your um, first story on the, the court ruling that there's some significant money at stake for movie as well, correct? Yes, there's a lot of money um, with movie. Obviously, this is 30% of their production. So right now... Um, with what they're not allowed to do with these fish transfers, their lawyers are saying they're going to have to call more than a million fish, and call means kill, basically. Just um, and I, I don't quite know what they would do with them if they killed them, but they can't sell them commercially. They would kill more than a million fish, and they have to uh, eat a cost of twenty-five million. Um, and they also are saying this is going to um, require them to lay off seventy-eight employees um, if. They can't get transfer licenses for two sites by April. Right, because you've got the grow out cycle for uh, farm salmon, and I, I believe these fish are at one kilogram, or maybe I'm thinking mixing that up with a, another uh, another story. But they're they still have quite a ways to go, uh, and they yeah, they're at sea fish too, I guess. Versus they were trying to get some other juvenile fish transferred. The and they had. Those were the 925,000 they've already um, killed because they couldn't get those fish transferred. So they're trying to get some bigger fish transferred. They were saying at the the hearing that um, the fish, if they were able to get this transfer, they would be able to raise them to four kilograms, which is you know on the bottom edge of market size. So um, what they're saying is they can they can still get the money, and then as part of the justification, they can also maintain those jobs. Just in sitting in on these hearings, what are the odds that's going to happen? I don't know, Drew. I mean, the uh, the lawyer for the fisheries minister, she's very stern on, you know, this is the policy. And if we make this exemption, you know, this sets a bad public example. Um, she actually described it as public harm, which I thought was interesting. Um, and I'm not super familiar with Canadian law, so I um, still need to kind of look into that. But, you know, she's saying, you, you know, we we grant basically what movie was asking with this particular court this week was for an injunction. You know, that exemption kind of, you know, what else could be exempted from uh, the minister's policy? Um, and then she, uh, the minister is really backing up what she laid out in December of last year um, and all of the requirements she laid out for movie and other salmon farms there that, you know, she's consulted with First Nations and this is what she's going to do. Now, I think part of the argument from companies in BC has been that they've been blindsided by this, um, that they didn't, you know, didn't see it coming. Um, but that was one of the things the attorney pushed back on, correct, was that, um, th that the companies should have had a, pl a plan in place. Yes, exactly. That's what, that's basically what um, the federal government's uh, lawyer was arguing um, in regards to for most of the cases that, yeah, they've, um, you know, it was a rush decision. Even First Nations felt like it was a rush decision 
um, the consultations kind of started happening last September and and there's some documentation that there's not a great relationship either between Fisheries and Oceans Canada and First Nations. So it's, it's, it's all pretty complicated, but um, yeah, I mean, she, uh, the lawyer at one point even said, well, you know, the companies have had really since 2012 when the Cohen Commission um, recommended, you know, they phased out of Discovery Islands, I believe by 2020. So, you know, she was saying they've actually had eight years to consider this and it's not like, their relationship with First Nations is getting any better, really. Um, and also, what was interesting, I thought, is, you know, the, the nation, the First Nation, that movie has an agreement with in Discovery Islands. It's actually one of the smaller nations. So, um, you know, it, she could have a point that the majority of First Nations do want um, movie out of Discovery Islands. And even the nation... First Nation that movie works with is pretty clear that they want <laughs> like salmon farming out of the area after they're able to to take over a site from movie. They just want it, um, you know, they want it cleaned up and remediated. And part of that will be allowing this transfer. So, you know, in the end, it doesn't look like movie has this spotless track record or something, I guess is what's interesting. So what, what I think the, the, the next development to follow for us for a longer term is going to be uh, land-based salmon. And I, I want to just hit on that before we, um, before we finish up our, our podcast this week, um, because there, there has been as part of this push for removing um, net pens uh, out of these different regions, there's been a push for land-based operations and there's been some, um, I think, false equivalency about the numbers of jobs and about, um, you know, the the ease of bringing um, production on land, which um, is rife with risk. And we found that out this week earlier uh, when Atlantic Sapphire, uh, the largest land-based salmon producer um, by market cap anyway, um, and the, definitely the most visible one, um, and <laughs> with their market cap, one of the largest seafood companies in the world. Um, think about that with just minuscule volumes. So these minuscule volumes are trying to raise, um, many of them uh, croaked in uh, an incident earlier this week, and it sent Atlantic Sapphire shares tumbling and it uh, it dragged down other land-based aquaculture companies as well in an indication of the risk that these uh, these systems have they are they are not foolproof they are not fully worked out these are very 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 much startup companies the fish they are raising uh, have been around a long time salmon and salmon husbandry is, very robust and it's very advanced genetically and, and technologically. There's a lot known about how to raise salmon, but um, land-based salmon in any kind of scale is absolutely a startup. So there were some 250 million uh, plus uh, shaved off the market cap of, of the land-based producers um, in the wake of that uh, announcement, in the wake of that incident. And that kind of continued uh, a little bit of upside um, uh, today uh, investors may be feeling a little bit more confident buying that dip a little bit and there was uh, uh, we did a story um, uh, citing 
uh, some analysts about their feeling that there was an overreaction in the sell-off of Atlantic Sapphire. Um, so let's see. We'll we'll watch that closely. But uh, we did a lot of coverage on that, um, and it, and it's just fascinating. It, there's new money coming into the seafood industry. A lot of it right now is coming into this very very young um, sector with uh, a whole lot of risk. Um, so that that makes for that makes for uh, interesting interesting times for the, uh, those of us that are, are writing about the industry. All right, folks, let's leave it there. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, John. Uh, we will have uh, our next digital event. We had a fantastic one this week, uh, our Seafood Outlook 2021. Um, we're having uh, our Aquaculture Innovation Summit at the end of next month. So mark your calendars for that. It'll be April 20th and 21st. You can easily find uh, uh, the, more about the event uh, on intrafishevents.com. And you can register there, uh, get your quote unquote ticket. Uh, it is uh, a free event to attend thanks to uh, the sponsors that we have supporting us on that. So uh, we'll look forward to that. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletters, follow us on social media. And for this particular podcast, if you can uh, rate it, give us a comment, uh, subscribe, that really helps. It's going to help other people find it, uh, and it's great feedback for us. So um, please do that. Then when you subscribe, as soon as we upload a new episode, it's going to download to your phone or give you a notification. So it's a great way to know when we have one up. And of course, you can find all of our seafood coverage on intrafish.com from our journalists around the world 24-7. We already have some great features lined up for next week. The team's been working really hard uh, on some good investigative pieces that will be rolling out over the course of the next couple of months as well. So um, so keep an eye on, uh, on intrafish.com. Thank you very much, all, and we will speak to you next week. <laughs>